good morning and welcome to part three in our series, A Humbled Hero, where we are taking a deeper look at one of my favorite heroes of all time, a man who doesn't have any special superpowers or wear a cape or anything like that. It's a real life action hero, and that is Elijah. And in the beginning of this series, I made a promise to you. I said that if you love action movies and you love adventure movies, you're going to love Life of Elijah. And today we're going to see why. Because today, we're going to take a look at one of the greatest action scenes ever. And it doesn't take place up on a big screen or in a galaxy far, far, far away. It takes place, it's recorded to us in the pages of scripture, and it's the classic battle, a showdown, a duel between the good guys and the bad guys. In one corner, we got Elijah. He's our hero. He's the man of God, the prophet of God. In the other corner, we have the false prophets, the prophets of Baal, okay? The people who are leading the people of God into idol worship and astray from the commands of God. And what we're going to see today is an epic showdown. Both of these parties go up this mountain called Mount Carmel. They're going to have this duel and this showdown and this confrontation, and then only one of them comes back down the mountain alive. And you can probably guess which one it's going to be. Now, for those who, like I said a minute ago, love action movies or adventure, adventure movies, that's for sure one of my favorite genres as well. And I love all the classics, okay? Whether it's, you know, love the Mission Impossible series or the Jason Bourne series, or of course you go classic, go old school, go 007, can't go wrong with one of those. Even a good Jackie Chan movie, okay, will make me happy on a Saturday afternoon. Every action movie has one thing in common, regardless of, of the story or regardless of the hero. And that is that you have a good guy who is facing bad guys, but the good guy, the odds are always stacked against him. Okay, no matter what the movie may be, it's always you have a good guy who's outnumbered, okay, by the bad guys, or, or, or for whatever reason, they're the ones who have the advantage. Okay, but as we know from every movie that we've ever seen is that even though the good guy's always outnumbered and even though he's always behind the eight ball, so to speak, that he always finds a way. He stares down the bad guys, even though the odds are against him and he looks him in the eye and he says, not on my watch. Okay, or, you know, go ahead and make my day or whatever it is that he says. Oh, some catchphrase. My favorite action movie of all time, for sure, has got to be Die Hard. Okay, and if you've seen the movie, that's a classic Die Hard. All right. And in the movie, what you have is you have Bruce Willis, one man, and then you have the bad guys, and it's probably, you know, 30 German terrorists or however many it may be. But our hero never fears. Our hero sees the odds against him, okay? And like I said, he looks danger in the eye, and he says, let's go. Or in this case, okay, I think he said something like, yippee ki okay? And I think that's all he said. At least that's what I've been told, so that's what a version I'm going to go with. It's same in our story of Elijah today. You're going to have Elijah, one man, odds stacked against him. Bad guys are going to outnumber him. Not 30 to 1, like it was in Bruce Willis and Die Hard. Our odds are 850 to 1. One man of God, 850 of the bad guys, and Elijah looks him in the eye and says, yippee Kaye, let's go, let's do this. And we're going to pick up our story in 1 Kings chapter 18, all right? And it starts this way. And it came to pass after many days that the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year saying, go present yourself to Ahab and I will send rain on the earth. 
So God comes to Elijah. Okay, Elijah had visited Ahab, the king, back in 1 Kings 17. We talked about that two weeks ago. So this is Elijah's second visit to the king. His first visit, as you remember, he strolls into his office, uninvited, unannounced, and basically says, look here, king, you know what you're doing. You're leading the people of God astray. God is going to punish you. No rain, no dew, except at my word. And he declared to the king, a drought is going to come upon the land. And then Elijah fled to Cherith. And that's what we talked about last week. As soon as he made this proclamation, God told him to get away and he sent him to Cherith, which means cut off or cut down. And that's where God did literally that. He cut Elijah down. He humbled him. He trained him. And the training was for exactly this moment. He wanted Elijah. He knew Elijah was going to do great things and have, and have great power. So he needed Elijah to know where the source of that power was. And that's what he learned at Cherith. Elijah, the source of your power is not your muscles, it's not your experience, it's not your brains, but is your hidden life, your secret life with God when no one else is around, just the me and you alone time. And Elijah learned that lesson. So that's where Elijah has been since he left the king. Now, where has the king been since that first initial visit? Okay, again, they met, and as, as the scripture just told us, it's been three years. They met together, Elijah said it, then Elijah went away for three years. What do you think the king has been doing for the past three years? Look at verse two. It says, so Elijah went to present himself to Ahab and there was a severe famine in Samaria. So what we learn here from this verse is what Elijah originally decreed was a drought. But what we end up finding the result is a famine and not just any kind of famine, but a severe famine. Now here in America, we hear the word famine. We don't know what that means. Okay. For us, that means we ran out of ho-hos or donuts or something like that. Like it's a famine, but a famine for those who have lived in places that actually <clears throat> rely on, on, on nature for the crops and for food, a famine is the worst thing imaginable. A famine means, okay, especially when, when there's no rain, that, that, it means no plants, means no trees, no fruits. It means the rivers where we get the water from, most of those have dried up. It means the animals upon which we rely for income, as well as, as our, 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 our livelihood, like that, that's our kind of our inheritance that we pass on is our, our livestock and, and the family business. It means that many of them will have died and if not died, gotten very, very sick. And it also means that people will die. It's estimated that during this three-year famine, three years, okay, three years is quite a long time. During this three-year famine, approximately 200,000 people died in Israel during this time. And if you kind of put that in perspective, okay, we're going through this pandemic right now with coronavirus, okay, and as of the time of this recording, we've had less than 200,000 deaths in this country from coronavirus. And if you think about it, the number, okay, they had 200,000 deaths over a much, much smaller population than we have here in America. In other words, this is a big deal. This is, this is the kind of thing where you're walking down the street for these three years and you see dead animals, probably see dead people lying in the street. There's a stench and an aroma of death all around. And if you are a common person or you're a lay person just living in the city, you think that this death came from where? It came from one person. It came from Elijah. Like we know Elijah didn't cause the famine. We know that he was just announcing it. So Elijah didn't say, I want to I hurt you. It wasn't like that. 
Elijah was saying that you, king, you have disobeyed God. You have taken our people in the wrong direction. Therefore, God is going to do this to you. We understand that, but the people didn't. Especially back in the day, they didn't understand things the way we do. So they believed in sorcery and superstition and magic. So as far as they knew, Elijah came in and said, I'm going to send a plague. I'm going to send a famine on you. I'm going to send a drought upon you. And he walked away and he did some kind of magic or voodoo or sorcery, whatever it may be. Think of it this way. Think if there's someone out there, okay, who walks, strolls into United States of America and makes a decree and says, I'm going to ruin the economy. And I'm going to ruin the stock market. And let's say we, he actually had the ability to do so. I'm going to ruin the economy. I'm going to ruin the stock market. I'm going to send all the 401ks down the toilet. I'm going to ruin the economy of the United States of America for three years. How would you feel about that person? How would you feel about that person? For three years, Elijah has been cursed by name. And people said, oh, if that guy ever comes back here, oh, if that guy dare show his face, oh, we'll get him and get him good. For three years, Elijah has been public enemy number one in, in Israel. And now all of a sudden, God appears to him and says, let's go back to the king. So if you're Elijah, <laughs> you're, if you're like me, you'd think to yourself, are you sure, God? Like whatever message you want to send him, why don't we send him a note in advance? Okay, like you're a God. Why not just kind of invent email right now or kind of drop a note from the sky? Like you had a raven bring me food. Why not have a raven, okay, or a dove or an eagle or a monkey for all I care, bring a note? Or why not appear to God in a dream? That's what me and you would have said. Me and you would have said, hey, God, I was there in front of Ahab and you're the one who told me to leave. So now you want me to go back? I'm gonna look dumb, okay? We were there, we had a chance, okay? Now is not the right time. That's how me and you would think. But Elijah... Elijah learned his lesson. That was the point of Cherith. Elijah learned in Cherith that God has a plan. And I trust God beyond what my eyes can see because my eyes see desert around here and brook and nothing. And then all of a sudden God would bring food from a raven. So Elijah learned the lesson that no matter what we see, God always has something up his sleeve. And he also learned that God isn't contradicting himself. This is an important point. God isn't contradicting himself when he tells me to do something today, which is the opposite of what he told me yesterday. That's not God contradicting himself. Okay. Sometimes God will tell you, go and then come back. Sometimes God will tell you, hide and then show yourself. That's what he did with Elijah. Think of it this way. Don't, don't, don't get tripped up by these things. Sometimes we think, no, God told me to take this job so I could never leave it. Or God told me to, um, to, to go to this city. So this is where I'm supposed to be. Sometimes God says yes and then later says no. Think of it this way. If I go um, on, my, on my GPS and I put in a destination I want to get someplace, well, the GPS told me to turn left. And then a minute later, it told me to turn right. Is it confused? Okay, why, why would it tell me to turn left and then turn right? Well, because that's kind of how you get to a certain place is you make progress. And then as you make progress, as the plan develops, the directions may change. Okay, the overall plan is still the same, but just because you can't see it doesn't mean that God doesn't have it. God always knows what he's doing. He's always got something up his sleeve. So Elijah goes back to the king. We'll skip now down to verse 17. Then it happened when Ahab saw Elijah, that Ahab said to him, is that you, O troubler of Israel? Okay, the word troubler there, it means a snake. He's basically saying to him, is that you, you dirty snake. And it actually probably means something worse than that, but we'll kind of keep it at snake. 
says, is that you, you dirty, no good? He probably got fire in his eyes. You snake, you. And Elijah, does Elijah get intimidated? This is Elijah the Tishbite, a man who has nothing, no money, no reputation, except negative reputation. He's got nothing going for him. But he looks him back in the eye and he's not intimidated. Look what he says, verse 18. And he answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you and your father's house have, and that you have forsaken the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. In other words, you call me a snake, you're the snake, you dirty little snake, you snake. That's what he says to him. Verse 19, he keeps going. Now, therefore, send and gather all Israel to me on Mount Carmel, the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. Look what, what, what I love about this verse. Okay, again, this is King and Elijah. King and then just this nobody Elijah. But look how Elijah speaks to him with authority. He's not asking permission. He comes to him and says, you, you send and get all these prophets and you tell them to meet me on top of the mount. Boom. He speaks with authority and he commands the king as if the king is his servant and not the other way around. Remember our key thought for this series. He who kneels before God can stand before anyone. That was Elijah. He stood before someone much greater than this king. So for him, king meant nothing. And he tells the king, this is what we're going to do on my terms. You're going to get the 450 prophets of Baal and then the 400 prophets of Asher. That's another false god. So 850 prophets, you're going to take them up on top of the mountain. And you're going to meet me there when I tell you to. <sighs> Bruce Willis was 30 to 1 and die hard. Okay, and it took him the whole two hours to try to get them one by one. This is 850 to 1. Like, you know, in the action movies, when it's like, you know, 10 guys are attacking one guy and they all like take turns, okay? They never come all at once and attack him. They, you know, patiently, like one guy goes and the guy, and then the next guy, and the next guy. But 850, like, come on. Like, 850 to 1, Elijah looks at those odds and says, that's about right. That's the way I like it. Verse 20. So Ahab sent for all the children of Israel and gathered the prophets together on Mount Carmel. Elijah doesn't just call for the prophets up there, okay? But he wants to make sure that all the people of Israel are gathered there as well. Elijah, in other words, wants an audience. I don't want to just beat you down in front of, uh, in private. I want to beat you down in public. But also remember, Elijah, this is very important right here. He wanted this in front of the people because Elijah's goal was always the hearts of the people, okay? It was never personal. It was never me against Ahab. The goal is that the people would see that the Lord, the God of Israel, is the God of heaven and earth and not these false gods. So that's why he says, bring all the people. Verse 21. And Elijah came to all the people and said, how long will you falter between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, follow him. But the people answered him not a word. He says to them, look, choose a side, man. Either God of Israel is the true God or Baal is the true God. Choose. They can't both be the true God. Okay, C.S. Lewis once famously said, Christianity can be many things, but one thing it cannot be is moderately important. Either it is the, if it's true, it's of the utmost importance and nothing else matters. Or if it's not true, it doesn't matter whatsoever. You might as well forget about it. We as human beings, we like the middle road. 
We're like, you know, let's cover all our bases. Let's hedge our bet. So maybe Baal is the right God, so let's do some of that worship. And then maybe God of Israel, so let's do some of that. And that's what the people were doing is mixing this and mixing this and doing all these different things, cover all their bases, okay? And what Elijah says is, no, choose. And it says that the people uttered not a word, okay? They answered him not a word because they didn't know what to say. They didn't know what to do. So what Elijah does next, he's going to make their choice very, very simple. Verse 22. Then Elijah said to the people, I alone am left a prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are 450 men. Therefore, let them give us two bulls and let them choose one bull for themselves, cut it in pieces and lay it on the wood, but put no fire under it. And I will prepare the other bull and lay it on the wood and put no fire under it. Then you call on the name of your gods and I will call on the name of the Lord and the God who answers by fire, he is God. Simple, straightforward plan. We're going to build two altars. You build an altar, I'll build an altar. We're going to get two bulls. You get a bull, I'll get a bull. We're going to put both the bulls on the altar. And we are each going to pray to our God to light the bull on fire. Okay? If God is truly a God, like if Baal is truly, if your God is truly God, he can start a fire, right? Like, I mean, the Boy Scouts can teach, like the Boy Scouts can start a fire, so surely God can start a fire. So if your God is truly God, let him prove it. And I will do the same with my God. Verse 24. So all the people answered and said, it is well spoken. In other words, they say, we agree. This is fair. This makes sense. Verse 25. Now, Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose one bull for yourselves and prepare it first. For you are many and call on the name of your God, but put no fire under it. So they called on the name of Baal from morning even till noon, saying, O Baal, hear us. But there was no voice, no one answered. Then they leaped about the altar which they had made. Bad guys go first, build the altar, put the, the bull on there, and they start doing their little rituals and they're dancing and they're praying, whatever it may be. Nothing. And then they did some more of the rituals, whatever it may be. Nothing. And did they more some of their rituals and did some more some of their dancing and more some of their whatever it may be. And they did it for three hours from morning till noon. They did it for three hours. And you remember, you remember in the movie Ferris Bueller's Day Off? Okay, I think the response was like that. They would do their dance and it would be Bueller, Bueller. Just like that, okay? Crickets, nothing. And I bet you, okay, I bet you, God, even if there was like a wind that a slight breeze, God told the breeze, shh, just so they could see absolutely no response to their prayers to Baal. And of course, Elijah, Elijah's having a great time at this. Look at verse 27. And so it was at noon that Elijah mocked them and said, cry loud for he is a God. Either he is meditating or he is busy or he is on a journey or perhaps he is sleeping and must be awakened. I picture Elijah like leaning on a tree with his arms crossed like this, being like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, uh, uh, try again. I, I, I think it was a busy signal. Try again. Try again. Or no, maybe he didn't hear you. Or, or maybe he's taking a nap. That's what it must be. He must be taking a nap. Or the expression that it says he is busy. Okay. Other translations will say he might be attending to his needs. Okay. So what that means is Elijah saying like, maybe he's in the bathroom. Like maybe he's just in the restroom. Like give him a minute. Okay. Oh, I heard a flush. Okay. Now give him a try. Like Elijah's talking trash and mocking them. And their response to that, verse 28 
So they cried aloud and cut themselves, as was their custom, with knives and lances until the blood gushed out on them. And when midday was passed, they prophesied until the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice. But again, there was no voice, no one answered, no one paid attention. Yeah, you know why no one answered? Because your God isn't really a God. He's a piece of wood or a statue, whatever it may be. And these guys now says till evening. So that means they started in the morning. Okay, probably started nine o'clock in the morning, went all the way till evening. So probably five o'clock, six o'clock p.m. They've been doing it now for eight hours, nine hours. And they're getting desperate. So they started cutting themselves and they started doing all kinds of weird rituals. But of course, nothing happens because their God isn't really a God. Elijah gives them nine hours to do their thing. And he says, y'all done now? Y'all people see this? How ridiculous these people are? Now Elijah steps up to the plate. Verse 30. Then Elijah said to all the people, come near to me. So all the people came near to him. Look at the confidence. And he repaired the altar of the Lord that was broken down. And Elijah took 12 stones, according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord had come saying, Israel shall be your name. Then with the stones, he built an altar in the name of the Lord. And he made a trench around the altar, large enough to hold two seahs of seed. And he put the wood in order, cut the bull in pieces and laid it on the wood and said, fill four water pots of water. I'm sorry, four water parts with water and pour it on the burnt sacrifice and on the wood. He builds the altar. He cuts a trench around it and he tells them to fill four pots of water and pour it on the altar and on the, on the bull that's to be burned. Why would he do that? You know why he did that? To make it harder. Elijah wanted to make it harder. Elijah was so confident and he knew that God is going to do this. He's saying, y'all couldn't start it. No matter, you're 850, you couldn't do anything. Watch what my God does. Okay, we're going to bring it down. And he says, no, 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 no. Actually, before we do it, let's put some water on it. Let's drench that bad boy just so y'all know that there's no smoke and mirrors right here. Verse 34, he goes on. Then he said, mm, do it a second time. And they did it a second time, poured water on again. And he said, hmm, um, do it a third time. And they did it a third time. So the water ran all around the altar and he also filled the trench with water. Not only, he's about to bring fire from heaven, but the, the, the sacrifice, the altar is now drenched in water. And Elijah, no problem. We'll read what happens in a second, but just why Elijah is so confident? Why is Elijah so confident right here? This is exactly the point of Cherith last week. What God taught Elijah in that hidden life was he taught him not to look at the 850 men around him because looking at the 850 men would make him fear. Not to look at a dry piece of meat or a wet piece of meat that somehow has to light on fire. Elijah didn't see the enemies. He didn't see the obstacles. He only saw the God above them and his eyes were focused solely on God. And if you look down here at obstacles, oh no. And you look down here at people, oh no, oh no, oh no, oh no. God taught Elijah to look up and there it is. There's God saying to do this. So as long as God's saying to do this, he looked past all this. Now he didn't even see it. It's as if like it weren't even his line of vision. He didn't see any of the 850. He didn't see the obstacles because his eyes was focused solely on God. Verse 36, 
And it came to pass that Elijah the prophet came near and said, Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and I am your servant and that I have done all these things at your word. Hear me, O Lord, hear me, that this people may know that you are the Lord God and that you have turned their hearts back to you again. Again, notice the goal isn't me and let them see that they were wrong about me and let them be punished because it wasn't me. It was all about your name and your people and turn their hearts back to you. That was the goal. Elijah never lost sight of the goal. It never became personal for him. It was always about the glory of God and the glory of his name. The response of God to this, immediate, verse 38. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt sacrifice and the wood and the stones and the dust, and it licked up the water. I love that expression. It licked up the water that was in the trench. Now, when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and they said, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. When it says the Lord right here, okay, Lord with small caps, capital L and then O-R-D in small caps, doesn't mean Lord like my Lord. That would be just a capital L and then little O-R-D. But when it's small caps like that, it means the Lord means Jehovah, meaning the God of Israel. So what the people are chanting is your God, Jehovah, God of Israel, he is God. He is God. The Lord is God. And the hearts of the people were turned back to the true and rightful God, which is God of Israel. Last verse, just for added measure. Verse 40. And Elijah said to them, Seize the prophets of Baal. Do not let one of them escape. So they seized them. And Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and executed them there. Now, I know this sounds kind of extreme, okay? Like, you won the fight, Elijah. Why do you need to execute all 850 of the other guys? Well, think of it like cancer, okay? The, the idolatrous, idolatrous worship or idolatry was a cancer to the people of God, and it threatened their very existence. What do you do when you discover a cancer that's inside? You kill it all by any means necessary. You don't want to leave even 1% of it around. Even if it goes into remission and it's just kind of underlying, if you can get rid of it all, you get rid of it because it is deadly. That was what Elijah did right here. He said, this idolatry, okay, this is deadly. And that's why God said, no mingling with the other peoples, no marriage with the other peoples until you guys get this thing right, that there is only one true God in heaven on earth. That is the God of Israel. So 850 prophets against one, and the one executes the 850. <laughs> How did that happen? Scripture doesn't tell us. So we don't really know. I'm thinking, okay, to kind of stick with our movie theme here today, I'm thinking of another action movie of Rocky IV. If you remember Rocky IV, when Rocky was in Russia, okay, and fighting against the big Russian guy, and in the beginning, it was the whole crowd, and, 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 and they were all against Rocky, and they were chanting, they wanted to kill him. But by the end, after Rocky had defeated the other guy, the crowd was cheering for him. I kind of picture that right here too, is that all the crowd in the beginning hated Elijah and you caused this. But when they saw what he did, that all of a sudden they said, he's our guy, he's our guy. And most likely they helped him execute. Okay, they probably took down all the false prophets and realized what they had done. But we don't really know. All we know, like in the movies, you had... Again, Bruce Willis and Die Hard. You had the good guy and the 30 bad guys walk into the building. 
You had only one walk out. That's what you happened right here. You had Elijah and 850 bad guys walk up that mountain, but only Elijah walked down alive. Boom. So you know what? You can keep your Chuck Norris. You can have your Rambo. You can have your Bruce Lee. You can have your Bruce Willis. You can have your Jackie Chan. You can have your 007. You keep your action hero. I'll take Elijah on my team. Now, the question that we want to answer, all right, is we want to ask ourselves the question, what made Elijah so invincible in today's story? And really his whole life, but what we can see in today's story. What I want you to, to, to be clear on, this is not a movie. This is not a movie which is scripted. This is not Hollywood. This is real life. Elijah, like we read before, wasn't a superman. He was a man with a nature like ours. He didn't have any superpowers. But somehow he could do things that we can't. How? Well, I feel like there's an easy answer, and, and, and I think the answer is probably a little bit more complex than, than, than on the surface. I think the easy answer to say is, well, God did all the miracles, okay? And it was God's power, which is 100% true. I'm not saying it's wrong. But isn't that, like, isn't his God the same as my God? Like, don't I have that same God in my life? And in fact, don't I have him living in me? So if it's God who does the miracles and I have the same God, why don't I do anything like that? Why am I so weak and he's so powerful? Does God love him more than love me or does God work more in him or anything? What's the secret? Well, I, I want to talk about three keys to Elijah's invincibility. And I think you would be foolish to just look at this story and see the power of God through Elijah and just think that, you know what, God just worked in Elijah for whatever reason. No one is born better than the other. Like Elijah wasn't born better than us. God doesn't love Elijah anymore. There's three aspects to Elijah's life that contributed to his ability to do wondrous things and that are weak in our life, which is causing the weakness in our life as well. Okay. And here's the thing about these three. You need all three, all right? So it can't be just one or two or three. You need one plus two plus number three. All right. What are they? The first one, we will be invincible when we know we are in the will of God. When we know we are in the will of God. Knowing the will of God can make a superhero out of the weakest person. You know, oftentimes I'm asked the question about when I was ordained as a priest. I was selected to the priesthood when I was 25 years old. Um, I'd just been married just for, you know, three or four months. And people are like, how could you have done that? Like that took such courage and took such strength. Like how could you touch such confidence? How could you do that at such a young age? And I'll be honest. I, I don't think I was strong or courageous or, or, or in any way. I, I think the reason that I, I know the reason that I did it is not because I had confidence in myself. It's because I knew this is what God wanted from me. Like my confidence was never in my ability. In fact, to be honest, when I was ordained as a priest, I had never known anyone or met anyone who was ordained to priesthood. Like the way it was in my day is priests were kind of like shipped that way from Egypt, they kind of came out of a box, okay, like with the robe and the beard and the hat and everything. They just kind of came out and just kind of, you know, wind them up in the back and then they'd kind of do their priest thing. I had never seen someone turn into a priest from a normal person. So I certainly didn't have any confidence in that. And I know you look at me today and say, you know, you, 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 you're confident and things like that, but I was actually very shy. I was a computer programmer kind of a guy, consultant, and I was not a people person by any means. I was very shy. I was kind of timid. So 
this is not like, yeah, I, I, I knew I could do it. No. What it was is I knew God wanted me to do it. And I know if God wants me to do something and tells me to do something, man, uh, what choice do I have? Same thing in marriage. So often when it comes to marriage, we're looking for a girl or a guy who meets all of our criteria and we can be certain about them. And I, I mean, that's good to explore. I'm not, I'm not against that, but I'm saying what it all boils down to really is one question. This is what I always ask everyone. Is this from God or not from God? Because if it's from God, even if there's uncertainty, we go. And if it's not from God, even if there is certainty, we run. Because if something is from God and it's the will of God, it means that regardless of what happens along the way, the ups and the downs, it means we'll make it in the end. Because God is the only one who has seen to the other side. He's the only one who can see the other side of marriage, the other side of priesthood, the, the, the back end. And if God says we go for it, we go for it. And that applies in every aspect of life. Don't tell me which house you like or which house is bigger. Tell me which house you feel God wants you to, you, to, to purchase. Don't tell me about this investment. Can I afford it or not afford it? Tell me if you think this is how God wants you to invest your money. Don't tell me about which city you know has, has beaches or whatever it may be. Tell me that God is the one who's calling you to it and pushing you to it. And that's all that matters. The only question that matters in life when making a decision, is it from God or not from God? Ephesians chapter 5, verse 15 through 17. See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Understand what the will of the Lord is, because when you understand the will of the Lord and you know the will of the Lord, man, let's go. I put my head down and run through a brick wall if I know it's what God wants me to do. There's an old adage. Measure twice, cut once. Probably heard that before. Okay, if you've ever done any like kind of DIY projects or whatever it may be, measure twice, cut once. And some of us have learned this lesson the hard way, okay, when it comes to home projects, which is we measure, we cut, and then we're like, oh, need to re, should have re-measured it, and then we got to start all over from scratch. I believe the same is true when it comes to the will of God. Measure twice, cut once. We do the opposite. We get this idea of like, oh, you know what, I want to do this. I want to marry this, or I want to buy this, or I want to move, this. I want to do this. And then we run to do it. And then once we run to do it, we find ourselves stuck in it. We're like, okay, God, please bless this. Please, God, make this work. Please, God, fix this. No, no, no. Measure twice, cut once. I get this idea that I want to do this before I run to do it. I'm going to stop. And I'm going to say, God, this is what you want? This is what you're calling me to do? This is who you're calling me to marry? This job you're calling me to take? Is this from you or is this from me? Because this is from me, I don't want it. I don't have any confidence in my own. But if this is from you, man, let's go. And let's do it. We need to spend more time, like Elijah, knowing the will of God in the quiet place, in the hidden life, and less time rushing to try to do it, more time discerning it, and less time pushing my own agenda or my own will. Think about it this way. Think of the difference between these two prayers. God, bless this job. Bless this relationship. Bless this house. Bless this whatever. That's kind of how we usually do it. Versus God. Before I take a job, which one is it that you want to bless? God, which is the relationship that you want me to go into, that you are going to bless? Which is the decision that's from you? Not this is my decision, please God, bless it. God, which is your decision and I will obey it and I will do it. That was Elijah. 
once he knew the will of God, as it says in Romans 8.31. If God is for us, who can be against us? That's it. Once we know God's will, if God is for us, who can be against us? If God is telling me to go up on this mountain and there's 850 people against me, what do I care if it's 850 or 650 or 8,000? What do I care? If God is for us, who can be against us? And the question for us is, or I should say the challenge in front of us is to spend more time discerning the will of God, all right, before we rush into doing it. That's number one. We will be invincible like Elijah when we know we are in the will of God. Number two, we will be invincible like Elijah when we fight our battles with earnest prayer. When we fight our battles with earnest prayer. Again, in the action movie, it's usually not just that the hero is outnumbered, he's outweaponed, okay? And that means that just like Elijah right here, no weapons. The, uh, usually what it is, is like, again, Bruce Willis in the movie. He didn't have anything with him. The other guys had the, the, the machine guns and the rifles and the whatever it may be. And he just had, you know, he didn't have anything with him. Then he eventually took him down with his bare hands or whatever it may be. Same with Elijah. Elijah came into this fight with the 850 prophets with no weapons except one. And that is prayer. But not just prayer, earnest prayer. Look what it says in James Chapter 5, verse 17 through 18. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain in the land for three years and six months. And he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth produced its fruit. Elijah came into this fight with no manual. Here's how to bring fire from heaven. With no precedent of like, oh, this is how other people have brought fire from heaven. There was no like YouTube video that he could just go on fire from heaven. It was none of that stuff. Elijah came in with one thing, with one weapon, earnest prayer. And I want to highlight the word earnest. Earnest doesn't mean, I'm not saying he said a prayer. I'm not saying that he read a book about prayer. I'm not saying that he attended a meeting where other people prayed. I'm saying Elijah had with him earnest, sincere, zealous, diligent, perseverant prayer. The kind that makes you sweat when you do it. And here's my question to you. I need you to be honest with this. Okay, be honest with this. Answer this question honestly. If I were to ask you in the last seven days, in the last seven days, how many times you prayed earnestly? If I were to ask you in the last two weeks, how many times you prayed earnestly? Last month? Last three months, all of 2020, too many of us are trying to be invincible on our own. And we are cutting ourselves off from the very source of our power. I love this quote from an author named S.D. Gordon. It says this, it says, the great people of the earth today are people who pray. I do not mean people who talk about prayer, nor those who say they believe in prayer, nor yet those who can explain about prayer. But I mean those people who take time and pray. They have not the time. It must be taken from something else. This something else is important, very important, pressing, but still less important and less pressing than prayer. Too many of us are trying to fight and be invincible and be strong, but we leave aside the only weapon that has any benefit, which is prayer. So Elijah, invincible, okay, three criteria. First one, 
knows he's inside the will of God. When we know we're in the will of God, we walk with confidence. Will of God is run through the brick wall. Let's do it. Put your head down and go. Number two, carried one weapon with him, earnest prayer, not just pathetic, weak prayers, but earnest prayer. And then number three, and this is the one that I think is the most important. We will be invincible when we are passionate for only one thing, the glory of God. When we're passionate or zealous about one thing, which is the glory of God. The story of Elijah is a story of one man who was outnumbered, outweaponed, like he had nothing going for him. He had no reputation. He had no army. He had, no rep- he had nothing going for him. Yet he silenced the king and he turned back a nation, a nation that was in a dark, dark, dark place. How? How was he able to turn back an entire nation and essentially help this, this, this country make a U-turn from one of its darkest periods? It's because he had an all-consuming passion, a zeal for the glory of God. Look what it says here in verse 36, okay, which we just read a minute ago. And it came to pass at the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice that Elijah the prophet came near and said, Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and I am your servant and that I have done all these things at your word. That's Elijah. Elijah was zealous for the name of God. It was never let them see that I'm right and let them see that they're wrong and let them respect me or let them, none of that stuff. Elijah was zealous for one person's glory and it was not his own. It was the glory of God and that's why God worked mightily through him. And if I can be very honest, if I can be very honest, there are many people in the world today who speak big words and and have great ideas about how the world needs to change and all the things we need to do to improve the world, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But oftentimes, those ideas, they fall short because they are usually built around the glory of the person and not around the glory of God. Oftentimes, the people who are advocating changing the world and want to do great things in the world, it's not that they care about the the glory of God's name and the honor of God's name. It turns out to be the glory of my name and the honor of my name and the glory of my party and the honor of my party and us being right and us being vindicated. That wasn't Elijah. Elijah, okay, it was, again, it was never about himself. Elijah was going crazy as he's sitting there in Tishbe saying, how can they disrespect God like this? How can they defy God's laws like this? How can they just blatantly ignore him like this? And, and to quote another hero, okay, that's all I can stand. I can't stand no more. That's what Elijah probably said. It's Popeye in case you didn't know who that was. That was Elijah. Elijah looked around at, this, at the society, at the landscape of the world, and all he saw everywhere was blatant disregard for God's laws and blatant dishonor of God's name. And Elijah couldn't take it anymore. It's not about me. It's about the glory of God. And I'm going to ask you a hard question right now, and I need you to be honest. How do you feel? I know how I feel when my name is dishonored. I know how I feel when my name is disrespected. I know how I feel when my rules are broken, or I know how I feel when my motives are questioned. I know how I feel with all those things. How do I feel when God's name is dishonored? And God's name is disrespected. And God's rules are broken. And God's motives 
and his goodness is called into question. Elijah walked invincibly because Elijah walked for the glory of the invincible one and never for his own. Second Chronicles chapter 16, verse 9, which is kind of our, our theme verse for this series, says this. It says, The eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong on behalf of those whose heart is loyal to him. There are many people in the world today who look around and see darkness all around us. And they have good intention. They want to change the world. Lots of different ideas. More power to them. But my fear, my fear is that it revolves around the wrong thing. Is that it revolves around my agenda, not God's. It revolves around my honor and my glory and my being right or my party or my candidate or my, my, my team, my team winning or whatever it may be. It revolves around my glory versus the glory of God. And I'm telling you, give me one person like Elijah, zealous for God's glory. Okay, well, all three of them, walking in the will of God, knows he's in the will of God, earnest prayer is his weapon, and then seeking earnestly the glory of God, not of himself. Give me that one person, I promise you, that's the one who's going to change the world. The one who's not worried about his team winning. The one who's not worried about his own agenda. Not worried about his own honor. The one who's worried about the honor and the glory of God. There's no limit to what God will do in the life of that person. The lesson of Elijah. The world was in a dark place back then, and one man came. Will of God, spent more time focused on what is God's will versus convincing God of my will. Number two, earnest prayer. Not just a prayer here or a prayer there, but earnest prayer, the kind that moves mountains. And then number three, zealous only for the glory of God. And that one man, turned a nation around. That one man brought light into a dark situation. That one man was used mightily by God in ways the world has never seen. And I'm kind of praying the same would happen today. That there'd be some hearts out there that may be listening to this and maybe say, you know what? Maybe I'm not aiming at the glory of God. Maybe it is about me. Maybe it is about proving you know, so-and-so wrong or winning whatever argument. And I pray that if God finds those hearts, that I should say, I'm sorry, I pray that when God finds those hearts, that when God finds those hearts, that he does work mightily and strongly on behalf of them and in the world for the glory of his name, nothing else. Let's bow our heads for a prayer. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you for everything that you've given to us, Lord, and giving us a chance to serve you. Forgive us, Lord, for seeking our own honor and our own glory and help us to, to, to have loyal hearts like Elijah that seek only your glory and your honor and nothing else. And we pray that when you find that, Lord, that you would work mightily because our world is in so desperate need of it today. We pray these things in the name of your son, Jesus Christ, with the intercessions and the prayers of all your saints. Here us as we pray thankfully, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. In Christ Jesus, our Lord, for thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Thanks so much for joining us here today. I'm going to leave some questions up on the screen and hopefully you get a chance to discuss them with whoever you're spending the afternoon with. 
Have a great week, everyone. See you next week.